You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, our text is Luke chapter 14. Our subject is biblical hospitality. And uh, our specific title for today is Table Manners. Now, as you might expect, I'm not going to be talking about Emily Post or Martha Stewart. I'm not going to be talking about the etiquette of the table, although I do agree that that's something that parents ought to teach their children. But we're going to talk about the ethics of the kingdom. Kingdom ethics at the table is our subject today. And Luke 14 is our text. Uh, before I pray, uh, an interesting story, I think, on, on Billy Graham. One of our professors, Frank Thillman, um, grew up pretty much within the neighborhood of the Grahams in Montreat. Uh, Frank's father, Calvin, uh, was the pastor of the church that uh, Ruth Graham went to. Um, you know, Graham never switched from Southern Baptist to Presbyterian, and uh, although uh, Ruth's uh, father was a long-term missionary in China, uh, but uh, Frank would go. Frank played with the Graham kids, and from time to time would go over to the Grahams, and he remembers Billy Graham fixing him sandwiches for lunch along with, uh, the, I forget which child of the Grams he played with, about the same age. And as that story was being shared this week, uh, one of the students piped up and said, uh, well, that's why Frank Graham is so holy. And just a pause. And then Mark Genelette responded by saying, no, that's why Billy Graham is so holy. Now, you... I guess I should have set this story up better. Uh, Frank is one of our professors who, uh, if you were trying to illustrate sinless perfection, he probably would qualify. Um, and uh, uh, he's just a, you know, he's a wonderful believer. Um, and uh, unlike most of us, where the students can perceive that we need to confess our sins daily, uh, we don't necessarily perceive that about him. Uh, okay, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your goodness to us. And as we open your word, we ask that you would speak to us from it by the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father and in the name of the Son. Amen. Well, table manners in Jesus' kingdom ethic, you ought to have a, uh, an outline. Anybody that could use one that doesn't have one? Anybody else? Good. We spoke last week on Genesis 18. I understand that the tape didn't work, um, which sometimes is just as good. I wish I knew it wasn't going to work, and then I would have made it much more dialogical. Um, sometimes I feel a little limited with, with our taping system here, because I think really the best way to do this class would be around a big table and sort of discussing this passage and getting feedback. Um, as we go. But in Genesis 18, you have the picture of Abraham by the oaks of Mambri 
sitting at the door of his tent, and suddenly three people appear. And he rushes to meet them and to extend hospitality. But this hospitality scene goes well beyond the Bedouin offering that Middle Eastern customary hospitality. This is the fourth affirmation of the covenant to Abraham. And church, early church fathers felt that this wasn't uh, just emissaries from God, but this was God himself who showed up. And the language, the linguistics of the description of the narrative is really interesting because you never distinguish between the three and the Lord. The Lord referred to singularly and the three referred to plural would indicate that there's ambiguity here, which Augustine saw as descriptive of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Trinity showed up. Uh, and the next meal will be the Passover. Well, we've rushed ahead and um, we're moving to uh, table manners uh, and uh, Jesus, particularly in an incident on the Sabbath. So let's pick the story up, Luke 14, verse 1. I continue to encourage people to um, bring their Bibles uh, so that I don't um, print out the whole text. But I think probably you'd be a little lost without the Bible. So if you've got a phone, Luke 14, 1, um, the device can be very helpful. One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, this is an interesting kind of uh, hospitality setting. It doesn't appear from verse 1 to be a very hospitable situation. He went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Uh, in the NIV, it's a prominent Pharisee. And even, I mean, Luke's hinting here that, uh, hinting as to the self-importance of the host. And I'd suggest to you that Around many of our gatherings, our social gatherings, self-importance is a really big dynamic. But you'll find in all of Jesus's relational hospitality dynamics that self-sacrifice enters in. So put these two in tension, self-importance and self-sacrifice. Jesus apparently has been invited, but why has he been invited? He's been invited to this prominent Pharisee's home, I think, to be scrutinized, to be examined. There's already a sense of, and this, if, you, if we read Luke and the narrative carefully, there's an inside-outside dynamic that goes on in the gospel. And those who are on the inside, Jesus continues to tell them, no, you're on the outside. You don't get it. You're not part of this kingdom stuff. You don't understand who's shown up and who's talking to you even now. And those who think they're on the outside are invited into God's hospitality 
and they're invited in. You have this dynamic going on between self-importance and self-sacrifice. Do you like hotel banquets? <laughs> I don't really know anybody who likes hotel banquets. Usually crammed around a circular table, uh, dressed too warm for the room, and people are invariably spilling on you as they try to get those plates on the table. The conversation is stilted, and you can hardly hear because of the din of the room, at least years ago now. It's been true for me. Hard to hear. I feel like I'm shouting. I could use a mic, not now, but a mic at the, at the table. I don't enjoy those. And add on to that that kind of fundraising banquet, which seems to be almost like um, perverting hospitality. Uh, and you feel like you're being manipulated and used. Um, there's, a, there's a far side greeting card that I picked up because because um, it has my surname in it. It's a picture of two vultures in a nest on a cliff. And uh, they're talking on the phone uh, to someone far away. And quote, it's the Webster's. They say there's some pitiful thing dying of thirst out their way, and would we like to come over? <laughs> you know, I'd suggest to you that the, the vulture in this hospitality setting is, uh, is the Pharisee. The Pharisee is uh, scrutinizing Jesus, whether or not he truly is who whether or not he can be welcomed into the inner circle, into their social gathering and be respected. I doubt if he thinks he can. I imagine he's looking for information so as to distance uh, themselves from him. Number three on your thing, the Pharisee and the experts in the law formed an inner circle and there was little question in their minds that Jesus was on the outside. I think that the Pharisee would even have in mind the idea that Jesus needed their approval to do his work. And I don't think that was on Jesus' mind at all. I don't think Jesus was showing up at that meal because he wanted to kind of win the respect of the Pharisees. And that will become evident in the conversation that ensues around this meal because Jesus takes control. Jim? That's just an interesting parallel to today's world. I feel like something I was have to get permission from society to be Christians. We have to get the nod, the approval. They're kind of the gatekeeper. Well, that we worry about the world's recognition, and and maybe uh, you know this. We we need some sort of. Um, uh, understanding of self-confidence in the midst of social gatherings. Uh, and I'm speaking to myself as much as to anyone on that because I, I wish I were better and more Jesus-like in social settings to be able to kind of shift the conversation 
Uh, I'm a slow thinker, I think, when it comes to that. Um, an hour after the occasion, I can think of all sorts of things I should have said or could have said or would have been helpful to say. Um, and uh, I find myself almost on edge because it is an opportunity. Um, and I think we all know, I mean, I know people who are really good at that. Um, and I aspire to learn from them in that setting. Well, there's a lot of tension around this table. Let me read more of the passage. We just read verse 1. Verse 2, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. I guess we'd call that gout, a bloated feeling around the joints. Um, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Lawyers not meaning our kind of lawyers, but uh, educators, seminary professors, that type of person saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Well, okay, <laughs> that's not the question you ask in polite dinner company around the table. That's, that would be like me, you taking me out for dinner with a lot of your friends, and I'm saying, well, okay, what do you think about gun control? <laughs> you know, and uh, I mean, it was interesting having a mentoring group discussion on gun control uh, at the seminary this week, um, and we, I think to a person, felt like we need to shut up about this, that this would not go over well. Uh, you know, I'm all for banning the amendment, not just assault rifles, but I'd start from scratch all over again. You already, some of you don't like me now. Um, <laughs> But Jesus does this. He just drops a bomb in the middle of the conversation. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? With And now, some think that this was a setup. The person with gout and in pain and hardly being able to walk was there on purpose, set up by the Pharisees. Because the reputation of Jesus' healing was already something that um, had spread. Would he do it? Would he recognize this man? And so there's this unspoken dynamic that's going on, and Jesus raises it to the surface. Well, what do you think? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And what's the response? But they remain silent. Well, now, I mean, that's tension-producing, right? You ask a question, and they just look at you. You can feel it now, can't you? And then he took him, he healed him, and he sent him away. Okay, this isn't about you, is basically what he's saying to the man that he's just healed. This isn't about you. And he heals him. And, you know, if I guess I were preaching on this in a different, con you know, preaching on a typical Sunday morning, I'd say something here about um, the reality of the miraculous and I would probably hone in on the fact that I really do believe Jesus healed him and that he had the power of the Creator as he was working on redemption. He had both. But they remained silent and he took him and healed him and sent him away and he said to them, okay, follow-up question. Which of you, having a son or an ox... <laughs> 
interesting relation, son or an ox, <laughs> that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And they couldn't reply to these things. They continue to remain silent. The tension continues to build. And now he told a parable to those who were invited. What right does he have at this table to tell the parable, to control the conversation, to manage this? He takes it, takes the opportunity. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited, so he's, who's scrutinizing who? I mean, the Pharisee is scrutinizing Jesus, but it seems like Jesus is out scrutinizing the Pharisee as he watches them take these places of privilege. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do you sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him? And he who invited you both will come and say to you, well, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, you may say to you, friend, move up higher. You know, we probably this parable and this type of reasoning is so much that pervades even our social Christendom culture that very few of us would even be tempted to go and take a higher place than we thought we might be given, no matter what culture you come from. I just think that in our our psyche, we just probably wouldn't do that. But it's interesting how it might impact our conversation. Um, It might impact who we're trying to get close to in the room, uh, thinking that maybe we can leverage something from somebody who is, in our minds, uh, significant. It's just interesting to play with that dynamic that Jesus is presenting here. Uh, and he's drawing a really, we've said the difference between sort of the, uh, the social uh, reality and the kingdom reality is the difference between self-importance and self-sacrifice. I would say that there's an important distinction here. And think about it. You don't have to agree with me on this at all. Uh, I, you could agree with me on gun control, but you don't have to. Um, The difference between humility and humiliation. I think in the Bible there is a sharp distinction between these two. I'd like to read the italicized paragraph. In the Bible, humility and humiliation stand as opposites. Humility is a spiritual discipline, an intentional commandment, a commitment of the will in relationship to God and others. It's a chosen and cultivated quality of character that matures and deepens with our experience in Christ. Humility is a surrender of our will to the commands of God and the needs of others. The apostles' exhortation, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, calls for an intentional and resolute self-emptying. Humility is the chosen awareness of our needy dependence on the mercy and wisdom of God. I'm suggesting to you, humility is not a kind of unconscious lowering of oneself. I'm suggesting to you it's an intentional act of commitment in the will. You choose humility. You choose that kind of self-emptying and self-sacrifice. 
You do so by the people you identify with, by the people you help, by the people you serve. Humiliation, on the other hand, is, is a feeling of shame, inadequacy, disappointment that comes from our own sinful self-reliance. Humiliation is trusting in ourselves. Humility is trusting in God. Humiliation rejects God. Humility bows before God. Humiliation leads to despair. You might say that humiliation is the flip side of pride, proud, being proud, pride. Humility leads to hope. Humiliation thrives on self-promotion. Humility frees us from pressure to make a name for ourselves. Humiliation is our enemy. We feel it in our soul, but humility is our friend, whether we know it or not. For there is no other way to deal with humiliation than with humility. The way to deal with both being proud and humiliation is by humbling ourselves before God and humbling ourselves, I think, before others. Jesus is lecturing. At this table, he's lecturing. Uh, he's saying how you should uh, choose your seat and what your uh, proud choice of seating as you came into this room, uh, he's suggesting to them is a sign of uh, the lack of humility. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, he's not through yet. Turn the page. He launches into the parable of the great banquet. And he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, oh, he's advising the host now. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, that's a very dynamic southern statement. Because family is so important in the South that by the time you've worked through all the family obligations and responsibilities, you don't have any time or any energy for anybody else, do you? So, this has interesting implications for our culture because we're so family dominated we don't have anything left just to get through birthdays is about all the hospitality that you could handle so it's interesting for us to think about this um, Jesus giving advice to the host that invited him to scrutinize him but Jesus ends up scrutinizing him when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends. Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Because they can't repay you. As if that almost is a criteria for showing hospitality. They can't repay you. And you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Isn't that an interesting phrase, the resurrection of the just? Um, we're justified by faith, by Christ, by faith alone. Uh, what did we sing this morning? Uh, one of the phrases of just as I am, just as I am poor, wretched, and blind. Um, and the advice that Jesus gives here, uh, 
So are you still engaged in this conversation at the table? <laughs> and what is the host thinking? Uh, verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed, this, this is so interesting, um, because the tension has built up to the table at the table so much that there's somebody at the table who wants to relieve the tension and wants to speak some nice spiritual thing into it. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Such a nice spiritual truism. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Uh, Eugene Peterson makes a big deal that sacrilege can go up as well as down. Obsequious piety can be a form of blasphemy where we're using pious, religious cliches and terms and we speak those out. Um, somebody's trying to give the benediction and send the people away. But Jesus won't have it. We're not at the benediction yet. We're just getting going. Just think of the dynamic around the table. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, exclamation mark. But he said to them, he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the same time, now, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke 13, 23. Because this is the question that's being asked, and all of these conversations have to do with this question. In verse 23 of Luke 13, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So are a lot going to be saved, or just a few going to be saved? And Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. I cannot now think of that passage without thinking of our narrow door in the, in the nave, in the sanctuary, and how most of the church has to funnel through this. Uh, two people can't even fit through that door, or at least two big people like myself can't fit through that door at the same time. You've got to give way or you've got to bend your shoulders. Um, we kind of have the illustration of the narrow door right in our church. Are many or few? Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now he's talking about this banquet where everybody's invited. A man once gave a great banquet, invited many, and at the time, at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited. Now, we're talking here about God's hospitality. You know that's where that's moving. God is inviting many. Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first said to him, you know the story. I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master, and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly. Now, what's characteristic about the excuses? The excuses all have to do with commercial or family life 
getting in the way of responding to God's invitation, God's good news. What's characteristic about that, what's unique about that, is that the excuses are all really good. They're viable excuses. It's not evil to look into a business transaction that you're doing. It's not wrong to um, prioritize family. These are all really good excuses. Helmick Tielecki, this is number two on your sheet. As a rule, the road to hell is paved not with crimes and great scandals, but with things that are quite harmless, with pure pri- proprieties and simple, uh, and simply because these harmless proprieties acquire a false importance in our life because they suddenly get in our light. They still refused to take the risk of accepting that great joy and giving up their own indulgences and ties in and ties in order to have it. And then David Getz, and, and we won't go into him too much, but he's written a really good book. It's an easy read. It's kind of old now, but it still speaks into our culture very well. Death by Suburb. Um, and as much as we might like to admit it, there's a link between the suburban middle-class Christians and the prominent Pharisees in dinner conversation with Jesus. There's so much that gets in the way of the hospitality of God and the invitation of God. Well-intentioned believers have so many options and distractions that compete with the narrow door invitation to follow Jesus. Getz argues that the suburbs tend to produce inverse spiritual cripples. We've got everything, but we don't have the right thing. So what happens here? In Jesus' description of God's hospitality, who would constitute the Pharisees in this picture? Those are the people that are giving the excuses. The people who felt that they were on the inside are really on the outside, and they're not showing up at the invitation that God extends. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. He's saying it to them. He's saying it to them in image. Again, it's a parable. Um, And they don't get it. Verse 21, so the servant came, reported these things to the master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. The people who know they're in need, the people who face the reality of uh, being broken and and sin-twisted and and, uh, deprived, these are the people that know they need salvation. And the servant said, sir, what you... What you commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, you notice in verse 25, now great crowds accompany him. It breaks off with the end of the parable. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, wouldn't it have been nice if we could have finished with the benediction in verse 15? Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. 
Amen. Goodbye. It's been a nice evening. Or noon dinner. But it doesn't. It ends on this sour note. For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus had the courage of uh, difficult conclusions. And it's manifest here. It is uh, kind of characteristic. So how did this meal end? What happened? How did they get up and walk out? You think they shake hands? I don't know what, what they would have done, but I, I, I have trouble imagining how this ended well. Yep, I think you're right. Hmm? It backfired on them. They had a setup for Christ, and he, he, he knew them. And he ended up scrutinizing them, whereas they intended to scrutinize him. But did they benefit from this conversation? Maybe someone in the audience did, but the, the ringleaders probably did not. Would you wouldn't choose this strategy pragmatically, would you? This is not how you would go about bringing change. Uh, you wouldn't want me to give this kind of advice to pastors in training, though, would you? And you wouldn't want me as a pastor to do this kind of thing. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Um, I think we get so used to how the narrative flows in Scripture that sometimes we don't stop and ask or perceive how radical it is. Jesus would have us unnerved by the patterns that have been deeply grooved in our social etiquette. He would have us resensitized to the whole purpose for getting together for dinner. The reason for extending ourselves. He would have us uh, teach our children not only how to use a knife and fork and spoon and how to use a napkin and how to do a place setting, but he'd also have us to understand the, the kingdom ethic. He'd have us tell stories at the table like the story of Melchizedek, the uh, the son of Jonathan. Now, you know, if you're part of the royal line and the king has come into power and Saul has been overruled and Saul committed, you know, has died, to be part of that lineage was a dangerous place to be. Middle Eastern kings went after any potential line that might try for royal domain. But David, he asked, is there anybody left that I can show hospitality to? Anybody left in David's line that I can, out of honor to Jonathan, befriend? And the lame son of Jonathan is the person that he extends hospitality to. It's a beautiful picture that illustrates what Jesus is talking about in this Luke narrative.
Another story that we could tell at the table um, to our children and to our friends to illustrate the biblical kind of understanding of hospitality is Paul, 14 days in the midst of a Mediterranean real storm, and they've already thrown a lot overboard um, to, to lighten the load, and they've gone pretty much without eating for two weeks. And Paul says to them, I know the Lord's told me that no one on this ship will die. You have to trust my God who has shared this with me. But we have to eat. We have to keep up our strength. And he takes bread, breaks it, blesses it, and gives it. Now, to me, that that's how Acts ends. And how does Luke, for volume one of the Luke-Acts series, how does Luke end? Luke 24, the two, ro- the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And when Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, they recognized him as the risen Lord. And now you have at the end of Acts, our missionary Paul, who's bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, on board with a pagan group of criminals and and Roman soldiers, takes, breaks, blesses, and gets the same verbs. Now, is he celebrating the Eucharist with these pagans? No, he's not. But I do think there's a Eucharistic feel around Paul, around the word of God that has spoken physical salvation to these people. And now this enactment, I think, is a message from Luke that wherever Paul goes, wherever he goes, even eating is kind of a sign of the cross, a sign of the gospel, a sign of Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't plunk down a big, thick ESV study Bible at the table. No, it's, it's more dynamic than that. Speaking of the gospel, sharing the gospel. I think these stories are important. Well, we've got to end. I'll pray. Lord God, thank you. Uh, please continue to help us understand your word and the importance of your view of hospitality, the invitation of the gospel. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.